Welcome to the Way Church Podcast. The Way Church exists to love God, love others, and make disciples. You can find out more about the Way Church at thewaychurchrva.com. Now we hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Father, you are worthy of your name. You're worthy of our praise. And we just ask that you lead and guide every aspect of this time of worship together as we want to focus on you and you alone, Father. We thank you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Church, you may have a seat. I invite you to go and grab a seat and grab your Bibles. We're going to be in Luke chapter 23 today. Luke 23. And we're going to start really in verse 32, but we're going to carry on pretty quickly from there. Luke 23, verse 32. And we're continuing our series, Jesus for All. And this is the last week of our series. We're going to start a new series next week. But it goes back to what Jesus says in Mark 2. Jesus says, it's not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I didn't call, come to call the righteous, but sinners. And the point is, that's all of us. That's all of us. There's no one righteous, no, not one. Yet we see these several different encounters, this is week six, of who Jesus allowed to come to him or who he sought after. And he was the unlikely, he was the outcast. It was the sinner of sinners, right? Because we, you know, us, we rack and stack sin. That one sin is sin. Different consequences, but yet the severity remains the same. One sin separates. That's the gravity of the series, but also the hope of the series is that no one is too far from the Lord because of their sin. And we're going to get to it in a minute. I'm already getting ahead of myself, but you can't out-sin God's grace. That's the good news of the gospel. It's the good news of the series. And I pray the Lord has encouraged your heart through this time together. If you're taking notes, you can title this sermon, The Comfort of the Cross. The Comfort of the Cross. So that's what we're going to look at this morning, is the crucifixion of Jesus. You see that? We're going to catch midway. So already up to this point, we're going to take up in, Jesus has already been brought before Pilate. The crowd has already yelled, crucify him. He's already had to carry his cross, and then another man had to carry his cross a little bit further, because he's already gotten beat almost to death. And now we come to verse 32 of Luke chapter 23. It says this, two others, criminals, were also led away to be executed with him, him being Jesus. When they arrived at the place called the skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And it's interesting when you see the life of Jesus, that all through his ministry life, he had crowds following him to see miracles. Now you have crowds following him, mocking. And oh, what changes in a week. What we know as Passion Week, right? You see, just a week before Jesus' crucifixion, the crowds were yelling and cheering and praising Jesus as he entered Jerusalem, saying, Hosanna means save us. And now we come to this. He's on a cross, and the crowds are yelling, save yourself. Verse 35. It says, the people stood watching, and even the leaders were scoffing. He saved others. Let him save himself if... This is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him. They came offering sour wine and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. 
In other words, if you are who you say you are, prove it. Let's see it. And this would fall into the category of testing God. This is what I mean. God really gives two, t- two camps for testing him. One is a do. One's a you better not. You know what I'm saying? So the do comes out of Malachi. And this is a new series where we're going to start next week. So I'm not going to spend any time here hardly at all. But God says in Malachi 3, talking about giving, he says, bring the full tenth into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. Test me in this way, says the Lord of armies. See if I will not open the floodgates of heaven and pour out a blessing for you without measure. God says, test me in this way. This is testing by belief, saying, God, I I know you can. But there's a testing by disbelief. In other words, God, I know you can't. You're not who you say you are. And this comes out of Deuteronomy 6.16, which says, Do not test the Lord your God as you tested him at Massah. You see, in Exodus 17, you have the Israelites being delivered from Egyptian captivity, wandering through the wilderness, and one more time, they came to a place as the Lord was leading them, and they became thirsty, and there was no water. And so what they did, they turned against Moses and said, why did you bring us out here? In other words, they're blaming God. God, why did you do this? Why did you bring us out here to die? We'd been better back in Egypt. And they said, it says that they tested the Lord in this way. They said, is the Lord among us or not? In other words, you're not who you say you are. You're unfaithful. If you're really God, you would not let us out here to be thirsty and not providing for us. And to this point, God has already provided in various ways, in amazing ways, and still these people were still stubborn, callous, and hardened, testing God in this way, saying, prove it, because you can't. It's interesting, when Jesus was baptized, after this baptism, the Spirit led him also into the wilderness where he's tempted by the devil. The devil says, if, again, this if statement, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. And he quotes scripture to Jesus. Jesus says, it's also written, do not test the Lord your God. The Pharisees tested Jesus in the same way. In Mark 8, it says, the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, demanding of him a sign from heaven to test him. Jesus' response He says, why does this generation demand a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to this generation. I'm convinced there would have been no amount of signs that could have been accomplished to convince the Pharisees, to convince this crowd at the foot of the cross. No matter what he would have done, they still would have been unconvinced that he was the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And that's the heart posture we see. And so the question has to be asked. So I I say this statement, no amount of signs would have convinced them. And I would hope you say, well, why would you say that? Well, if you look, what did Jesus do while he was in ministry, doing these three years of ministry throughout the region? Why did he have such a following? Well, he healed the sick, made the blind see, made the lame walk. He fed thousands with a kid's lunchable, right? 
He brought the dead to life. You got Lazarus. I mean, Lazarus was dead, dead. Four days dead, like stinky, don't open the grave. That's what Martha, Martha said. Martha said, Lord, don't open the grave. He's going to stink. He's been dead four days. Dead, dead, right? Aren't you glad that God doesn't listen to our perfect plans? I mean, I am. His plans are higher than mine. And so what Jesus does in John 11, he says, Lazarus, come out. And this man comes out after being four dead, days dead, dead, D-E-D, dead. You know what I'm saying? Dead, dead, dead. Just seeing if you're awake. It's like my pastor only knows how to spell. He came out still wrapped in his grave clothes. But the amazing thing, why do I bring this up? Because here God literally raises someone from the dead, right? Jesus says, come out by name. Come out. Raise him from the dead. And what's it say? In John 11, 53, it says, So from that day on, they, being the religious leaders, plotted to kill him. How many more signs do you need to say that I am who I said I am? Here's the point. If you're truly not seeking the Savior, no amount of signs will convince you. It just won't. You'll remain unconvinced. And what the funny thing is, the irony here is, is here these people are demanding yet another sign. Save yourself if you are who you say you are. Yet, yet they had a literal sign sarcastically placed above Jesus. It says in verse 38, this is the king of the Jews. And the focus shifts from the crowd at the foot of the cross to the criminal on the cross. Verse 39. It says, then one of the criminals hanging there began to yell insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. In other words, you're not the Lord. You're a liar. That's what he's saying. Prove it. And as we see here, the crowd that's condemning the soldiers who are crucifying and the criminal that's criticizing, I have to ask, like, how does one's heart become so hardened? Do you meet people like this? Just hardened, cold, calloused. How does that happen? To be literally being crucified and yelling insults at this innocent man, how do you get there? Even as imminent death, he was too calloused to consider the claims of Christ. I think there's a warning here. And we don't know this man's history, but I know people. I know life. And I think if we're not careful, history has a way of hardening your heart. We experience so much hurt in life that can lead to real difficulty receiving healing that can eventually lead to a hardening of your heart because of life. And sometimes this result may either lead to someone denying God's existence altogether or blaming God for evil's persistence in our culture. I think we've got to be very careful not to measure God's character through the lens of a godless culture. Does that make sense? Not to measure God's character, who he is, through a lens of a godless culture where we live at, where we're in, what we see on the news, what we see in the other side of the world. We cannot do that. We cannot blame God for evil. And this is what we kind of result to. I have a 
Conversations after conversations. Why does God allow things? If he's God and so loving, why doesn't he stop it? First, don't blame God. In reality, evil exists through the people responding to the hunger of their sick heart. It's called sin. That's why evil exists. Because sin. I've said it before, I'll say it again. I think we give the devil way too much credit. Right? When we mess up, we're like, oh, the devil tempted me. Really, we're just following our own passions, our own hungers, our own desires. Yeah, are we tempted? Is spiritual warfare real? Absolutely. But don't blame God for our failures, and don't give devil all the credit. It's us. I love our culture. And it's funny, when you look at the culture, the news, TV shows, you can see where an anti-God movement leads. It has to be to believe in something somewhere. And so what it looks like is look inside yourself, right? Look to your heart. Trust your heart. Follow your heart. These type of wordings. This is what our culture preaches. Is it not? Is it just me? Okay. You know what the Bible says? Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is more deceitful than anything else and incurable. That's what the Bible says. You know what Jesus says? I'm glad you asked. Jesus, in Mark 7, says, For from within, out of people's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, thefts, murders, adulteries, greed, evil actions, deceit, self-indulgence, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. I think that covers about everything. So look inside yourself and see where that carries you. And what's even, I think, what scares me is that by God's grace and by God's judgment, he'll let you have what your heart hungers for. If your heart hungers for God, by God's grace, he'll give you himself. If your heart hungers from everything but God, by God's judgment, he'll let you have that. Romans 1 tells us, verse 26, for this reason... But those who exchange the truth for a lie, for this reason God delivered them over to disgraceful passions. In other words, he'll let you have what your heart hungers for. But even in that, even in the evilness of the world that we know is so in our face, God is still sovereign. He's still working and he's still good. So even though there's evil and things look like they're degrading and disintegrating, God is not done working. We know the truth of the Bible. It's what we have to remind ourselves of. Romans 8.28 says, We know that all things, that's a lot of stuff, all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. All things. And so here, Jesus being crucified is the most heinous, evil act in the history of humanity. The only perfect person who's ever walked the earth is getting murdered. To which... Peter would stand up in Acts 2 in front of a group of people regarding the crucifixion. He says, though he, being Jesus, was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, God's plan to have Jesus crucified, he says, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and to kill him. So that's within God's plan to use evil people to allow evil people to do what evil people do. It does. But yet, the heinous, most worst act ever in human history resulted in the most beautiful, amazing miracle that gives everyone life for whoever will confess Jesus as Lord will be saved. Amen? 
So we see this from the crowd to the criminal. They're saying, show me. And they're not wanting signs. They're trying to make a point. And this is interesting to me. I don't believe in this entire event. The most amazing thing would not have been him removing himself from the cross. Though he could have. The most amazing thing that happened was he stayed on the cross. That he stayed there. Isaiah 53 talks about the suffering servant. And really, when you see it, we'll come back to this. It's really commentary for Jesus' crucifixion. Written 700 years about before Jesus was even crucified. It says, he willingly submitted to death. Philippians 2.8 says, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And so, just me, I love a good hero story. But I also love justice. Unless it's coming for me, right? It's not so cool. But I love people to get what they deserve, right? Bad guys to get punished. And so when I'm looking at this, I'm thinking, what kept Jesus from coming down to just put the smack down, right, on these people? It's his love. I'm convinced. Romans 5.8 tells us, For God proves his own love for us, and now, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's amazing love. He could have came down, but he didn't. Because that's the only way that we could have a relationship restored with him, forgiveness of sins, by faith alone in Christ alone, through his payment alone, that satisfies. Because of his amazing love for us. So it begs the question, so we know how this thing ends, most of us. Jesus was crucified. He was raised on the third day. He'd walk the earth for another 40 days, spending time with folks, eating, teaching, before he eventually ascended, ascended back into heaven in front of many witnesses. They said, I will return, right? The angel said, as he leaves, he will come back. And so we know that one day Jesus will return fully and finally. And my question is, what is keeping Jesus from coming down now? Because it's going to be different. It's not going to be this suffering servant. It's going to be Jesus as king. I mean, this sword-wielding, tattoo-wearing, horse-riding king. It's in Revelation. So what does it look like? I think what's keeping him from coming down now is said clearly in 2 Peter 3.9. It says the Lord does not delay his promise, meaning he will return, as some understand delay, but is patient with you not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. That's why he hasn't returned. He's patient. Man, I'm so thankful for God's patience. I need it. So why hasn't he returned yet? Because he's patient. Not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. That is believing and repenting. There's two in one. You can't have one without the other. But what's noteworthy here, even in this criminal's spiritual condition during his crucifixion, he was still not beyond salvation. This is incredible to me. Because as a culture, we deem all kinds of things as unforgivable. Right? All kinds of failures, mistakes, sins. We have all these things that you can never be forgiven. There's no way back. That is a sin above all sins. But God doesn't say that. He says there's one sin that's unforgivable. 
Jesus in Mark 3 says, Truly I tell you, people will be forgiven for all sins, whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of eternal sin. And we walked through this in depth several years ago in the follow series. But basically what this means is simply dying while denying Jesus. That's when the sin is unforgivable. Until your dying breath, you can receive forgiveness by faith alone and grace alone and Christ alone. That's how good the gospel is. Talking about grace, you can live your life completely separated, anti-God, but if you believe, truly heartfelt belief that Jesus is Lord and he paid the price for your sin, moments before you die, you will be saved. That's crazy grace. Getting something we don't deserve. There isn't a person who has outsinned God's grace. There also isn't a person who's done enough to earn God's grace. How do I know this to be true? Well, you see on the cross, there's the truth of two criminals. It brings us to verse 40. The other criminal. He answered, says, rebuking him, don't you even fear God since you are undergoing the same punishment? We are punished justly because we're getting back what we deserve for the things we did. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. See, this criminal didn't care about the crowds, what they were saying. He saw his need for saving. And unlike the other criminal, criminal, he wasn't focused on the physical. He saw his spiritual need. And this is what faith looks like. True faith looks like. Repenting, requesting, and then receiving. That's what we see here. We see repenting, seeing his sin, he repents, throwing himself at the mercy and grace of God. Mercy and grace. Mercy, getting, not getting what you deserve. Grace, getting what you don't deserve. And both of these are pictured in one clear statement, Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death. That's what we deserve. That's what we have coming to us because of our sin. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's grace. Not getting the punishment we do deserve and train it for the gift that we don't deserve. So he sees that leads him to repenting, but also requesting, seeing his sin, he submits himself to Jesus by faith for forgiveness. And then you receive by believing. I just want to think about this just for a second. The audacity of this man to ask for the biggest favor in the history of favors. That's what he's doing here. Basically, I've lived my whole life for it myself. And now you want to ask me to spend eternity with me. This is not the favor like, can I borrow your phone charger favor, Right? This would be like, you know what, I see my phone, I threw it away because I want your phone, can I have your phone, and will you pay my phone bills for the rest of my life, favor. You know what I'm saying? Does that kind of make sense? Like, I, I can only have a favor that I can wrap my mind around that would be equivalent to what this man is asking of Jesus. So how could this criminal make such a bold request? I think a couple things. One, these two criminals were very aware of what the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders taught. This doctrine of doing equals deserving. 
That make sense? Since you do these things, you'll earn your way. Or since I've done these things, I deserve such and such. I think we got to watch out for the doctrine, this false doctrine drift of ourselves. Doing equals. Like faith plus works. That's a damaging doctrine. It's faith plus Jesus equals life. Not faith plus works plus Jesus. It's not. Your forgiveness and acceptance is not based on your performance. I need to hear that. Your forgiveness and acceptance is not based on your performance. I love that something we can so easily overlook. When Jesus was baptized, he came up out of the water, and it says something that looked like a dove descended on him. And in a voice was heard. God spoke. And he said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Why is that noteworthy? Because up until this point, Jesus has done nothing notable in anybody's eyes. Think about this. From this point on, he did all kinds of miracles. We already talked about making a lame walk, the blind see, raising the dead, amazing things. Up to this point, he'd done none of that. And what did God say? This is my beloved son in who I am well pleased. Not who I'm going to be well pleased because he's done this, this, and this, and this. But this is not how we come to God sometimes. Because I haven't done enough, I need to do more. You don't earn God's love. It's given. It's up to us to receive it and believe it. And that's where we have our time. Because we have to think we need to do things. Both of these criminals obviously heard the false doing equals deserving doctrine. But I'm also convinced both of these criminals would have been very familiar with Jesus' teachings as well. In Mark 1, Jesus says, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news or the gospel. In John 3, Jesus says, For God loved the world in this way, that he gave his one and only Son, that so whoever believes in him, everyone who believes in him, will not perish, but has eternal life. One criminal said, I don't believe it. The other criminal says, I believe it. And when I look at these two criminals, I believe they both represent a response that everyone throughout human history, past, present, and future, will have to make regarding Jesus. One response. Jesus is the worst liar of all. One of two responses. Jesus is the worst liar of all time. And I love the C.S. Lewis quote, and I think I quote it like every other week, but I'm going to say it again because it's amazing. I confront a lot of the falsehoods that we come to with Jesus. He says, I'm trying to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. Saying, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, or you name it, a prophet, a good person, one of many ways to God, someone I'm cool with. Like these things I hear, right? But I don't accept his claim to be God. This is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level of the man that says he was a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. 
Either this man was and is a son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can come and bow at his feet as Jesus, Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So you will have to make a choice. Either Jesus is the worst liar of all, or choice number two, Jesus is Lord of all. That's it. One day you will be judged on the choice you make during this life. Philippians 2 tells us that one day every knee will bow before Jesus. In heaven and on earth and under earth, that belt covers it, and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God. So whether you confess it now or then, you will confess it one day, but your righteousness, your goodness will be based on what you do now in this life. There's only one unforgivable sin. That's denying while dying. Dying in your denial of Jesus. And so this criminal makes this crazy favor request. So what would Jesus' response be? Oh, man, I, you know, I would. I would, but I see that you haven't been baptized yet. My hands are tied, right? Well, that's it, bad. It's crazy when you get a microphone in front of you, say some stuff. Oh, man, oh, you know, I, I really like to, but I look at your life and I see the bad far away the good, so no can do. Or, man, you know, I wish you had cleaned yourself up enough first, but you just didn't. So, my kingdom is only for the clean. My paradise is only for the perfect. But you know what's encouraging? Jesus didn't say any of that. Look at verse 43. Jesus said, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Truly, today you will be with me in paradise. There is not a place that you can be where God will not answer yes to your faith-filled plea to him. Man, I've heard some radical testimonies, even in this room. Jail, cell, prison testimonies. People coming to faith in the worst situations you can imagine. Then I've heard testimonies that people were just raised in a God-honoring, Christ-filled family. Praise God. There's not a place you can be where God would not answer yes to a faith-filled plea for forgiveness and salvation and life in Jesus. Even on a cross, in the last moments of your life, being crucified rightly because you're a criminal and get what you deserve. Even then, worship breaks out. Is that not amazing? Like we call this worship, it is. But worship breaks out in this guy's final breaths on a cross. You know, when I go out and just talking to people and look and see where God's working, I want to share the hope that I have in Jesus with people. And a lot of people I'll come across and say, yeah, I'm a Christian. Oh, that's great. Well, praise God. I said, let me ask you a question, totally hypothetical. I said, one day we'll all stand before God. And if he were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven, right, let you into heaven, what would you say? 
Alistair Begg does a great imagination-filled hypothetical situation about this thief on the cross. Going down that same question, what would you say? And just to start off with, if you were to say, imagine that situation in your own life, well, because I, you've already missed it. Two words in, you already missed it. What would you say? Why should God let you in heaven? Because I stop. Because if it's because of you, you would be separated from God for eternity. And I know this feels heavy, but it needs to. So I think we play church too much. It's only because of Jesus. Why should I let you in heaven? Because Jesus. Alistair Begg does this play back and forth as he talks through what this could have been like. He says, he imagines it to be this criminal now standing in heaven. And the angel comes up and asks, what are you, what are you doing here? Like, on what grounds are you here for? And confused, he, the angel gets his supervising angel, and then a supervising angel comes and goes, okay, so why are you here? So, so tell, tell me, what's your view on the inerrancy of Scripture? Like, what's your view on the doctrine of justification, sanctification? Can you tell me this? And the criminal is standing there like, I, I, I don't know. The, the, the guy on the middle cross said I could come. Is that just it? That's just it. The man on the middle cross said I can come. That's it. And I believed him. And here I am. I mean, is that a guy you want to talk to one day? Like, hear his story. Like, what would that have been like? The guy in the middle cross said, I can come. So when you stand, if you think you're saved because of things you did, you are on shaky ground. The firm foundation is Christ alone. I have access to God forever and ever, starting right now and one day eternity in heaven with him because of what Jesus did. That's it. John 3 says that everyone who believes will not perish. And this goes back to our series. We looked at several people, the everyone's, the self-centered, the socially condemned, even the sexually immoral. And Jesus came to each of these people, and they were radically changed because of who Jesus is. Ephesians 2 reminds us, it is by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It is God's gift. Not from works so that no one can boast. When we look at our lives, if we do an honest reflection, we could see there's nothing to boast about. I mean, when I compare myself to other people, I'm doing pretty good. I'm doing all right. Pretty good dude. A lot of you are pretty good folks. But this is a pendulum we swing at. We go from, you know, Mother Teresa to Hitler. And that's who we compare ourselves to, right? Like, I'm not Hitler. That's pretty good. I'm not quite to Mother Teresa, but I'm getting there, right? But both would be equally condemned if it were not by faith alone and Christ alone, by God's grace alone. This is what we measure ourselves by. And this is what brings us back to the comfort of the cross. Jesus endured our pain so that we didn't have to. 
Jesus bore our burden so we didn't have to because we couldn't. And so when we reflect on the cross, there should be comfort there. Because that should have been us. That should have been us. And yet Jesus took our place. And this goes back to Isaiah 53. Again, gives commentary to the crucifixion of Jesus. Some 700 years before the event, it says this. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses, and he carried our pains, but we in turn regarded him as stricken, struck down by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. The punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. And this is a Jesus for all. It says, we all went astray like sheep. We have all turned our own ways, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. Jesus for all. It means he's for you. doesn't mean he's all about you, right? But he's definitely for you. And if Jesus is for us, who can be against us? Jesus is for you. But there's a point to where you have to make your decision who Jesus is to you. Because it changes everything. You cannot experience Jesus and live the same way you lived before experiencing him. You cannot experience Jesus and not receive some kind of change in your life. He changes you. He makes you new. Yes, it's sanctification. It's a process over time. Not necessarily overnight, but some things are. You can't be comfortable in the living in unrepentant sin that used to be. Man, I remember it. I was 20 years old. And up until that point, I did some stupid garbage things. And after Jesus, I didn't know how, but I started not liking some things about what I was doing. I know how to follow Jesus. I wasn't downloading all the Bible knowledge, but I knew Jesus. What about you? God doing change in your life. Man, I think it's such a good time on Sunday mornings to reflect on our relationship with the Lord. And it goes back, are we truly following him as Lord? That means surrendering all that we are, all that we have, all of us, to him, do we trust him in that way? Because that's what faith looks like. In John 1, 1 John 1, 1, 9, says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We're going to continue worshiping. And everything we do here is worship. That's why it's called a worship gathering. So I'm going to invite Austin back up one more time, and he's going to lead us into one more worship song. But what's that mean for us? I challenge you every Sunday to respond to what God's doing. So as we, I'm going to pray here in a minute. I'm going to invite you to pray with me. And then we're going to respond out of worship. And that could be, man, it could be you just popping up and singing your voice out out of praise and worship to God. Praise God. But for many of you, it may be not. It may be just sitting where you are and praying and resolving some of the things that the Lord is bringing up in you and just being honest and transparent right where you are. It could be gathering a couple of people around you just praying. Have people pray for you, over you. We're going to have a prayer team. We would love to pray with you because you're not alone in this walk with Jesus. We'd love to pray for you, pray over you, encourage you. Man, some of you maybe just need to kneel. Posture matters.
I mean, what it look like if we start kneeling all over the place before a holy God, our reverence and the neediness of him? See, sometimes we care. The public gathering is so good and, and commanded not to neglect the gathering, but sometimes we get so focused on one another, we lose what God's doing in us. I want to give you freedom, and more than that, I want to plea and encourage you to respond to what God's doing in your heart. And maybe you finally figured out, man, I, I've known a lot about Jesus, but not really known Jesus. I've missed it. I've been trying to work my way into heaven. I've used the Bible as a ladder and not a mirror. I see my sin, and I'm in need for a Savior. And I need to come to him. It's simple. It's not a magic prayer that you pray. It's a heart posture that you have. Lord, I see that I've fallen. I see that I sin. I hate it. Forgive me. And somehow, somebody will understand it fully, but I know that your blood on the cross counted for me. So I know that I'm cleansed and forgiven because of what you did. And I believe it. Romans 10, verses 9 and 13 says, If we confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's a promise. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's pray together and let's respond to what God's doing. Father, I thank you for bringing us here this morning. We thank you for your amazing love and your amazing grace and your amazing patience that you have. We thank you for this account that we see with this criminal on the cross that had nothing to bring to you, no goodness in him, but surrendered to you as Lord. And Lord, I just ask that you move in this room at this moment, in our hearts, in our minds. Lord, that you bring refreshing by your Holy Spirit only way that you can as we come in here with burdens and stresses and fears that you relieve them because of your presence and your promises. And Lord, right now I just ask, if there's anyone hearing this that has not truly put their faith in you, I pray that you change that at this moment. Change lives, bring hope, bring newness of life because of who you are. Remind us that we come with our baggage, that we come with our dirtiness, because you are the only one that can clean us up. Our goodness rests in your righteousness, not our own. Lord, move in this place. Bring healing, soften hardness. Remove hurt. Father, bring a refreshing. And Lord, help us to fall back in love with you, Lord. Because you're the amazing love that you have for us. I pray you change lives. Father, we thank you for hearing our prayers. We thank you for your presence in this place. And we thank you for being for us. And with us. Lord, help us respond in a way that pleases you. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Way Church Podcast. If you would like prayer or if you'd like to talk to someone about a personal relationship with Jesus, please contact us through our website at thewaychurchrva.com.